Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. In fact, I'm extremely excited to be talking to my good friend and longtime colleague, Dr. Bob Rountree. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, fatty liver disease today. But before we jump into our content, let me just tell you a little bit about Bob. Uh, he received his MD in 1980 from UNC Chapel Hill, followed by a residency in family medicine at the Hershey Medical Center. He began his professional career at Wellspring Partners in Health in Boulder, Colorado, a multidisciplinary clinic that was one of the first integrative medicine healthcare centers in the U.S. So you've been in this for a long time. We're going to talk about that in a second. In 2002, you opened Boulder Wellcare, a private practice specializing in personalized healthcare consulting. Uh, Dr. Roundtree has co-authored co numerous books and numerous book chapters in uh, and on functional medicine. He's a longtime clinical educator and regular columnist for alternative and complementary therapies. Uh, in addition to clinical practice, he's a longstanding member of the core faculty for IFM. He was awarded the Linus Pauling Functional Medicine Award in 2015. Uh, uh, you also probably know he is the chief medical advisor for Thorne, uh, and he's lectured all over the world. And most of our audience has likely heard your amazing lectures, and I have the honor of presenting with you at the immune module at the Institute for Functional Medicine. And, you know, really every time I have the opportunity to hear you, Bob, or talk to you, um, I learn from you and, and, and do so in a way that's always really fun. So welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. A thrill, actually. Yay! Yay. I know. <laughs> um, listen, so in your bio, I can, you know, I can hear your story. You jumped into integrative medicine, like basically out of med school, it sounds like. But I just want to understand, you know, a little bit of background around it. You know, as I was mentioning earlier, in my um, questions to you, it's like you were born with a functional medicine spoon in your mouth. <laughs> <But> you've, <laughs> you've been in our space for a long time and you started immediately. Just tell me, how did that happen? Okay, I actually was studying alternative medicine before I went to medical school. Um, I, when I was 19, somebody gave me this book called Herbs, the Magic Healers by Paul Twitchell. Mm -hmm. And it was about using botanical medicine to treat disease. And to be honest, I'd never thought about anything remotely like that. You know, I wasn't interested in health and wanted to further my understanding. Somebody just said, hey, this is a cool book. You should read it. It'll help you get healthier. And I read it and I thought, oh my God, this all this stuff that I never considered because I grew up in the South eating crap. This amazing right. crap, you know, you know, the area I came from, and you know, North Carolina, and then before that, Alabama, they call it the stroke belt, right? right? So I grew up, you know, eating, you know, black-eyed peas with red-eyed gravy on it, and, you know, green beans that have been boiled with fat back for hours on end. So that was, that was all I knew about diet. And then suddenly I read that there are these herbs that, that can heal you. And I don't even know what chronic disease was. I didn't know anything. So I read that and I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to be an herbalist. And I looked around and it seemed like there weren't many career tracks being an herbalist. Yeah. You know, I just, I couldn't see any future. And uh, I thought, you know, I should just go to medical school. <laughs> I mean, really, wow. I wasn't that interested in mainstream medicine. I just wanted to get the degree. Um but then I got to medical school and I thought, you know, there's something here. There's, there's good science. I like, I like the scientific method. I like the idea of, of having a hypothesis and then confirming the hypothesis. I, yeah. I was surprised at, at how, how useful a lot of the thinking was. Right. Um, at the same time, I was shocked at, at how bullheaded uh, the good old boy network was. I went to med school in Chapel Hill. You know, if you said anything about nutrition, they basically dismissed it as, well, that's the purview of the home ec people. Remember home economics? <laughs> home economics. That's what nutritionists went to home economics school. Home ec, we called it. So you go, you do home ec and, you know, you learn how to cook for your man or for a prison or for a hospital. 
And that's what dietitians did. Then somewhere along the line, so I, I was really frustrated because I had read this book and then I got into herbal medicine in more detail. And so you start learning that what you eat affects your health, you know, all that kind of obvious stuff. But it wasn't so obvious to my professors, you know, who were just into mainstream pathology. And then I heard about this guy named Jeffrey Bland. Right. right. That was, year, you know, that was decades ago. Uh, one of my friends in medical school went to a conference and Jeff Bland spoke and he said, you've got to hear this guy because he is speaking to the science behind nutrition. And up until that point, we'd heard there is no science behind nutrition. It's just as beneficial to eat a bag of potato chips as it is an apple that's got the same nutrients. I heard that. That's amazing. Yeah. It was amazing how, I mean, you just can't even imagine what kind of, of, terrain there was when Jeff, you know, first kind of emerged from the darkness. And, you know, here's Jeff with this amazing command of the literature saying, well, uh, osteoporosis, you know, is a nutritional disorder. And so I heard about him. I, I made plans to go to a conference in nutritional medicine where he spoke. I was blown away by it, uh, but wasn't quite sure what to do with that information. And then then what happened is I went to a residency in Hershey, Pennsylvania, family medicine residency, and one of the professors there knew Leo Gallant huh. and said, you've got to check out this guy's research. You know, he's a conventional internist, uh, but he's looking at the role of essential fatty acids in health as an anti-inflammatory. You know, this was decades ago. So I ended up meeting Leo and, uh, you know, really having a good meeting of the minds. And, and you know, we were also um, getting very interested in all the research on gamma-linolenic acid. You remember all that, right? Mm -hmm. The whole sure. evening primrose oil thing. Yep. Um, so I was kind of following that track and decided this is what I want to do. It's, you know, this high-level nutritional medicine. Well, when I finished residency, there was a training at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to do that. It was a week-long training, and it had Jeff Bland, Sidney Baker, Leo Gallen, and Neil Orenstein. So I spent a week with those guys, and that was basically, as far as I'm concerned, that was the genesis of functional medicine right there. Wow. And so it basically evolved from that point on. So I've always practiced something you could call functional medicine from, from day one. And then when the, when the Institute, you know, which basically started within the Institute of Functional Medicine kind of started within Metagenics as a, as a training program for how to use Metagenics products. But then, you know, eventually it, it broke off and became this independent nonprofit. Um, and from the very first training, I was involved in, um, you know, in the course. So we had a, a very short course at one of the IFM symposia. Um, that is what became Applied Functional Medicine and Clinical Practice. And I, I spoke at that first short course on inflammation. And it all just kind of evolved from there. So, you know, that's been decades. Yeah, amazing. Jeez, it's really great amazing. to hear. Yeah, well, I had no idea that it would, you know, become as successful. We just thought we're a small group of nutritionally oriented biochemically oriented people and we yeah. have some interesting ideas and and we hope that they'll get implemented in mainstream medicine we had no idea that it would become phenomenally successful and and known around the world right right and in, in really in, in in rather incredible high demand an incredible it's pretty, high demand it's, it's, it's pretty extraordinary well thanks for that that background and you know what's really lovely is that we still have well, access to those those original guys today. I mean, we still get to hear them speak, and I mean, it's just it's a pond that's growing rapidly, but it's it's still intimate. You yeah, know? the roots are still intact. They really they really are, and you're you know you're deep in there. You're part of the root structure, Doctor Roundtree. Well, it's a thrill to have like known Sid Baker for you know. Yeah well over three decades, three and a half decades, and to, yeah. 
you know, watch his thinking evolve and to, yeah. and to get to hear him over and over again. Yes, yes, he's always inspirational. We have a, I have a clinical development program at my practice where, you know, doctors transitioning in are kind of shadowing and seeing what we do. And well, I'd love to ha have you talk to our people at some point. So we'll talk about that later. But, you know, Sid has, has inspired the group on multiple occasions, as has Jeff, and it's just really lovely. It's it's just lovely that we that we have access to these uh, these human beings. This is amazing, inspirational, visionary people. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, so let's jump into our topic at hand: non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You've been doing some really interesting and, as usual, progressive, comprehensive thinking around it. Background as well as you know, what we want to be thinking about and doing with our patients with regard to identifying it and treating it. So just talk to me about um, non-alcoholic fatty liver, liver disease. You know, what, what's the deal? You know, give me the, okay. background, the epidemiology, go. Okay. So, um, you know, we, we had talked earlier about how I got into this, which is that I had heard a, a presentation by Dr. Lynn Patrick a number of years ago. She's a, you know, well-known naturopath who's been studying chronic liver disease of all stripes for many years, and she gave a talk on the overlap between hepatitis C and fatty liver. And this is a number of years ago when nobody was talking about fatty liver as a standalone entity. And it just struck me when she said, you know, we've got a tsunami coming our way. Yeah. And the tsunami is going to be the tsunami of people needing liver transplants. And I said, what, what are you talking about? You know, and this is before we had the drugs for hepatitis C. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I guess everybody thought, well, once those drugs come out, you can cure hepatitis C. You're not going to see so much cirrhosis. You know, we've mostly got treatments for chronic hep B. Um, and so cirrhosis is going to be in alcoholics, right? Well, no, it turns out there's this other condition, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, that is kind of creeping into, uh, creeping into our health, you know, without announcing itself. And now what the experts are saying is that fatty liver, especially non-alcoholic fatty liver, is really the pandemic of the 21st century. It's the number one cause of chronic liver disease in the Western world, and it's headed towards being the number one cause of liver disease in the entire world. Wow. So this is, is much more common than we ever would have imagined. Um, yeah. You know, how, how is it diagnosed? Typically, it's diagnosed on a routine lab. So a person sit, comes to see a doc and says, you know, I want a wellness eval. I feel fine. Maybe I'm a little overweight. Um, but otherwise I don't really have any problems and they do a, a chem screen and their ALT is up and sometimes it's up just a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, what, the, depending on the lab you use, uh, upper range is what, 40 units, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so these are sometimes people that are just a few units above normal and you would tend to think if you see that, oh, it's probably nothing. Uh, maybe they had a little too much to drink the night before, or, you know, maybe they took one too many Tylenol. Um, you know, maybe they had some kind of transient viral infection. That's what we used to say in the past. But when I see that now, it's a big red flag. Right, it's right. A big red flag. And um, I am much more prone to, uh, well, well, I always want to repeat it to make sure it's real. And I still do serologies to make sure you know, it's not B or C. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do the basic kind of workup. And if all that's negative and the, and the ALT is still up, um, then I have a low threshold for ordering an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so typically what you get on the ultrasound is you don't get a quantitative report, unfortunately. All you get is a report that, that says, you know, if this is true, a report that says you've got fatty liver. It's, and I say unfortunate because it, we really do need to be able to quantify this because the number one question I get asked is if, if you're going to intervene, 
you know, how do you know that your intervention is making a difference over, say, a three-month period of time or a one-year period of time? And in patients where I've done serial ultrasounds, um, and I've, I've done quite a few of them, you know, all the, they really are going to tell you is that the liver has gotten bigger or not. So they'll, the report will say, yeah, there's still fatty liver, and the liver's the same size. But, you know, what we need to know is what's the fat content. So the definition of fatty liver is when the fat content exceeds 5% of the liver volume. And if you think about it, that's extraordinary. Right. 5% of parenchymal tissue is replaced with fat. And that what's extraordinary is that the person can have that going on and have no symptoms. They don't have pain. You know, they don't have jaundice. They don't have spiders. They don't have anything that, that indicates that there's a problem. So here's this silent disease, right? And the issue with it is not, at least we used to not think that fatty liver in and of itself increased mortality. The issue has always been that fatty liver is the precursor to fatty hepatitis, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH. Because once you get to NASH, that means there's inflammation, right? There, there's, and, and inflammation is, you know, something that you can detect with a C-reactive protein elevation, et cetera. But you would also see inflammation on a biopsy. Technically, the ideal thing would be to have liver biopsies, you know, from the get-go. Nobody's going to do that. But in studies where they have done that, that's how NAFLD is distinguished from NASH's. On a biopsy, you see scar tissue. And scar tissue means you've got activation of stellate cells that are you know, laying down collagen. And if you lay down enough collagen, the liver will shrink and it will lose function. So the, the problem in the past was always thought to be one of progression of fatty liver to NASH, that if you get NASH, now you're in trouble. Right, because NASH can lead to cirrhosis, and cirrhosis leads to loss of function or hepatocellular carcinoma. Right. Right. And once you've gone down that path, then you're talking about a new liver. Well, you know, okay, is that a rare thing? Um, apparently not. I mean, the epidemiologic studies, like the NHANE study, I think was one of the first studies to really look at this, the NHANES, uh, what was it, NHANES 3. Mm -hmm. I don't know, what are we at now? Are we at three, are we still at three or are we at NHANES 4, do you know? I was just trying to look that up and it's not, this. NHANES is a is CDC-sponsored nutrition survey, right? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So I we're either at three or four, but I know the NHANES 3 was one of the more recent ones. And in that one, they surveyed, more than 10,000 people, and in that survey, they determined that 22% had fatty liver. But there's been other studies that have said it's even higher than that. So the current guess is, is about a third of the population has fatty liver, at some degree of fatty liver. So a third of the population has more than 5% of their liver tissue replaced with fat. Is that, do you think that's scary? I think it's scary. It's extraordinary, yeah. It's, it's extraordinary. It's mind-boggling. Especially yeah. with newer studies suggesting that fatty liver itself confers problems. Right. And, and we can go into that in some, in a little bit more detail. The other issue that's really scary here is that it's, it seems to be even more prevalent in kids. Right, right. You know, this, some studies are suggesting that even in healthy appearing kids that some, t at least up to 10% have some degree of fatty liver. Yeah, I know. And if the kid is fat or has type one, type two diabetes, um, you know, then that percentage goes way, way up, way over 10%. You know, some studies are saying like 30 to 40%. Some studies are showing even more. So that the big worry is that what, you know, if you've got, a five-year-old kid with fatty liver, and you don't do something about that, that kid's going to need a liver transplant. Yeah. 
And so the, the surgeons are talking about this. The liver surgeons are saying, my God, by the year 2025, some 25 million Americans are going to develop NASH. And 20% of those are going to go on to either cirrhosis or liver cancer. And they're going to need to have a liver transplant. Where are these livers going to come from? So that's when we talk about the tsunami, that's what the tsunami is about, is suddenly we're going to have a shortage of li extra livers unless we do something about it. And that's why drug companies are spending millions, tens of millions of dollars doing research on the drug. They're looking for the drug, right? Because if, uh, if you can find a drug that reverses this, especially once it's got to NASH, if you can find the drug, you know, obviously it's going to be a, you know, a billion dollar drug. Uh -huh. uh, but right now there are no drugs approved. There's nothing. I mean, there's, you know, maybe some benefit from lipid lowering drugs or, or, you know, glucose regulating drugs. There might be some benefit, but none have really been shown to reverse NASH which is, you know, we'll, we'll get into this later, but there are supplements. <laughs> there are supplements that can reverse it. So here's the deal is that in the past, we, we said, well, it's only a, this is only a problem if you go on to develop NASH. But more newer studies are showing that actually just having fatty liver increases your mortality dramatically. Yeah, right. Right. So there's it, right. fatty liver by itself means something, you know, and I think it's, this is analogous to the old days when we would say, oh, if your hemoglobin A1C is over, what, 6.2, then you got diabetes. And if it's below 6.2, then you're fine. <laughs> right. No, obviously not the case. It's a continuum. So the you know there's there's the risk never goes away, but you know your risk starts at what five point five or five point six percent, and then goes up. And I think the same thing is true with fatty liver. So let's let, let let's just I mean okay. it's scary. It's scary, right? <laughs> well, it's profound. I mean, some of these some of the some of the data that you sent me is just. Uh, yeah, it's outrageous. The 70, you know, those with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, you know, what's yeah. supposed to be not a big deal, had 70% higher overall mortality. As yes. You know, and that was specifically due to cardiovascular events. Yeah. I mean, it's 70%. Yeah, well, the, these data are outrageous. You know, they're the, outrageous. And I tell you, the, when you, if you look in the mainstream literature, although this is, it's really changed in the last year or two because the awareness is, dramatically grown but in the past fatty liver has always been called a quote com comorbidity right right, right. so right. you know when you talk about comorbidities with type 2 diabetes you would say oh gallstones um you know cardiovascular disease gallstones pcos and fatty liver and it's always been and fatty liver mm-hmm and what has really kind of come up for me in diving into this literature is that it should be fatty liver and type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and all these other things, right? That maybe fatty liver is much more central to the pathophysiology instead of, oh, it's one of those consequences. Right. And if you think about it, if you got fatty liver, you got fatty muscle. Why are we just we're only focusing on the liver here, but if you're replacing liver fat, or liver tissue with fat, you're also replacing muscle tissue with fat. And we have a name for that, which is sarcopenia. Well, okay. So you've, you've, you know, elegantly and perhaps a bit scarily outlined the extent of the problem that we're looking at. And I, I, I you know, again, the research on kids is, particularly startling it's up to disturbing. 10 10% of lean kids. Ugh, yeah, it is. It is. All right. So folks, I just want to assure you that we will um, get into how to work up, how Something to work to it do. up and what, and what to do. Yeah, we will. But before we jump into it, 
you know, I want to talk about the risk factors. Yeah. So move through those. Move through the most relevant risk factors. Okay. So what you know? How do people develop this? And so, you know, the early papers all said, well, it's because we overeat and underexercise. Okay, but you know, that's our whole society, and everybody doesn't get fatty livers. So, is there something that we're overeating that's different? Why do we have an epidemic now? Yeah. Right. And so you ask the question well, do we know how to produce fatty liver, you know, in a, in a laboratory setting or in an animal setting? And, and of course we do, and it's called foie gras, right. right, which is duck liver. How do you, what, you know, what do you, when you take ducks and geese and you turn their liver into fat, how do you do it? You do it by feeding them grain, right, and specifically yeah. corn. So you force feed them grain. And, you know, people have been doing this as a delicacy for a thousand years, right? So it's not like, oh, wow, I never thought of that. That's, you know, this has been around for a long time. So how are we being force-fed grain and corn, etc.? Well, mostly the, the number one source is high fructose corn syrup, right? This is what the epidemiologist, the, the nutritional epidemiologist, just step back and look and say, What's really different about our society now is that high fructose corn syrup is in everything, every kind of processed food, especially, you know, sweetened beverages. And it was promoted as a, you know, beneficial alternative to sugar. Oh, it's corn syrup. But high fructose corn syrup has nothing to do with corn, right? It's so <laughs> processed, there's nothing left. So when people, when you track um, consumption of high fructose corn syrup with fatty liver, they go straight up in parallel. Yeah. And it also goes up in parallel with obesity. Right. So we're, you know, again, the idea was, well, it's fructose. How can fructose be a problem? Because, you know, fructose doesn't raise blood sugar, but fructose causes insulin resistance even worse than glucose. Yes. So free fructose and the fructose that's in high fructose corn syrup, those are both really problematic. And so there's a couple of things that will happen. So how can eating fructose lead to fat? Because fructose is a sugar and fat is a fat, right? It, you know, on the surface, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but, run through that a little. Just Yeah, yeah. so my, my understanding of what it does is that fructose actually induces insulin resistance. And when you induce insulin resistance, you actually turn on genes in the liver that are, the word is de novo lipogenesis. So you yeah. turn, turn on right. the DNL genes. In the, you also turn on inflammatory genes, but the, you turn on DNL. So you might think, oh, the person's got fat in their liver. It's because they eat too much fat in their diet. It turns out if you radio label dietary fat, that it's only a relatively small percentage that actually ends up in the liver. Most of the fat that ends up in the liver comes from free fatty acids that are released by adipose tissue. And a huge chunk of it is from de novo lipogenesis. And if, if you want to activate DNL, fructose is the best way to do that. It basically turns on the genes that do that. So that's why people are saying, gee, you know, if you put all the, the, if you connect all the dots, then what really jumps out is, you know, the, this is the biggest difference in our society. So this is the number one risk factor is consumption of high fructose corn syrup. And that's why it's, you know, if a person is diagnosed with fatty liver, it's a must that they stop all processed foods, which, you know, they should do anyway. I mean, we should all eat less processed food, but, you know, we've got to stop kidding ourselves that because it says corn syrup, that it's somehow okay. And that the guy that's done a lot of this work is Robert Lustig, mm -hmm. who I, I suspect you know or, uh, you know, heard him lecture. And here's what Lustig says that's very interesting. He thinks that fatty liver is the genesis of metabolic syndrome not the other way around. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you start shutting down liver functionality. 
and turning well, on. Here's one where Jeff scooped me, Jeff Bland scooped me. I was at a, uh, an IFM conference in Singapore a number of years ago, and I gave a lecture on glucotoxicity and why, why glucose is bad and why hemoglobin A1C was, you know, such a terrible risk factor for many diseases. And then Jeff got up and said, well, that's all true. And now I want to talk about lipotoxicity. <laughs> and, you know, what he was saying is that when you get lipid accumulation inside of liver and muscle cells, that interferes with insulin signaling. Yes. So Jeff was onto this many years ago. Um, you know, it was more a little bit more hypothetical back then, but now Lustig has been doing research on it. And, and again, he's trying to make a case that this is central to the pathophysiology. So, so again, back to your, your basic question, you know, what's the risk? The number one risk factor is consumption of refined carbs, especially high fructose corn syrup. Now, if a person, you know, is really over consuming these things and they get fat, if their BMI goes over about 30, um, you know, their insulin levels start to go up, obviously that increases the risk, but it doesn't just happen in fat people. And that was the, the point I was trying to make about kids is there, there seemed to be a whole other secondary set of risk factors that people haven't thought about. And one of them seems to be disorders in the methylome. And I know you would love this one. Right. Right. Yeah. I was looking uh, at this it. Is, oh, this is exploding. The liver, the hepatic methylone, Yes, it's, the research is just exploding on that, and and part of it came out of this realization that if you um, if you put somebody on um, total parenteral nutrition, where you control their entire diet, and you leave out choline, then virtually hundred percent of those people will get fatty liver. Wow. So why is that? Well, you need choline to make phosphatidylcholine. So choline is converted into PC in the liver, and PC is used in VLDL to package lipids and ship it out of the liver. So if you don't have enough PC in your liver, then those fats are going to accumulate. That makes sense, right? Yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, a huge percentage of our population is choline deficient. Right. That's right. Right. Yeah. And so there's this flip-flop between, well, how do you supply enough methyl groups in your liver, you know, to keep the methylone intact? You can either get it from choline or you can get it from folate. And so if a person's got choline deficiency, then maybe they can make up for it with folic acid. Right? But what if they got MTHFR or MT is it MTD? I always stumble on that one a little bit. That it's the MTHFD one. Yeah. Which, you know, Zysel, who's the choline expert at Chapel Hill, you know, he thinks that's more a more important SNP to MTHFD one than the MTHFRs. But people haven't really talked about it so much, and so it's interesting in reports, you know, that I'm seeing in SNP testing, and people. You know, the, if they've got the MTHFD1 coming back showing, uh, you know, that they've, they've got the slow enzyme, then the number one recommendation is to increase choline. There's also uh, an enzyme called the phosphatidylethanolamine methyltransferase, the PEMT. Yeah. And that, if you've got a choline deficiency, you can somewhat make up for it if you've got this enzyme. So you can actually produce... PC by another pathway. Um, but if that enzyme is slow, then you need more choline. Well, not only that, but it's actually really, you know, that's a pretty challenging pathway. I mean, it's yes. got, it, there's three SAM dependent steps and, yep, you know, yep. to, to actually produce phosphatidylcholine as, at the, as an end result. So, right. I mean, so I think it, we've always considered it choline to be conditionally essential, even though you know, we can make it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I got to say here that the there's been this, Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you can make PC. You know, I, I think both dietary sources are good. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, um, I've been doing a lot of um, 
work with a company called Balchem that makes choline. And so I've had a chance to talk to, talk to some of the top choline researchers around. And, uh, you know, it's really, it's kind of blown my mind at how much research has been there because I, I always thought, well, choline is something you give to, um, to pregnant women, right? Because, you know, you want it for the, the kids, developing kids' brain, et cetera. And so it should be in a prenatal formula. But other than that, who needs it? And now I've come to realize from uh, reading work by Marie Caudill, um, who's really somebody worth, uh, worth talking to. Um, she's at Cornell um, and has done a ton of research on this. And she's made it really clear, again, that we have this massive deficiency of choline in the population. And that's, uh, that's impacting the methylome. And if you, if you basically have a defective methylome, then it's a setup for fatty liver. So what if you're consuming sugar-sweetened vegetables, I mean, sugar-sweetened drinks, and then you're not getting enough vegetables, you're not getting enough eggs and dairy products, et cetera, for your choline, then you're in trouble. Right. And I, I got to make a little side comment here, which is that, you know, Stanley Hazen at Cleveland Clinic is trying to make an argument that choline is bad for you because it increases uh, TMAO. Yeah. Right. But I've, I've spent a lot of time diving into that literature and I just don't buy the hypothesis. I think the high TMAO is a marker for choline deficiency. Yeah. All right. We'll just walk there through briefly, but I want to, I, I do want us to stay on task here. Yeah. Well, it's part of the issues of, People are saying, gee, don't eat choline because they're worried about TMAO. Well, I think that's going to worsen our epidemic yes. of fatty liver if people avoid choline and phosphatidylcholine. In fact, the other way around, I give phosphatidylcholine and I specifically like to give phytosomes. You know, as a, as a consultant for Thorne, I've, I've had a chance to really dive deep into the whole phytosome technology and, you know, all the, all the stuff from Indina, the, the, Salibin phytosome, the curcumin phytosome, um, you know, the data on that stuff is pretty impressive and I think it's part of solving this problem. And that is the heightened bioavailability. So you're Yeah, well it's not it's so the phytosomes do two things. They they enhance the bioavailability of the nutrients that can help reverse this problem, but they also providing phosphatidylcholine. Mm. Right. Right. So you're, you're solving, you know, two different things. You're, you know, I, I hate to use that word about killing birds, you know, two birds with one stone, but you are. So let's just, let's touch on a couple, just a couple of other risk factors. You point out, you, you mentioned some earlier that are pretty compelling. So let's talk about TASH and then let's just talk about, um, you know, gut involvement. Okay, so if you talk about, you know, the big umbrella of fatty liver in general, you know, if you discover somebody's got an increased ALT, and that does seem to be the best marker, although I've had a few people who, um, who had an increased GGTP mm-hmm. or GGT, depending on which, how your lab is reporting it. Um, GGT can be the only indicator of it, Right. Um, or, or the slightly increased ALT can be the only indicator. Right, right, right. Right. So, you know, and why, what is it about ALT? Well, it's, it's mostly in the cytosol of the liver. So it's, it's a pretty specific indicator of liver damage. Right. And then the GGT, my understanding is that enzyme, you know, it's involved in glutathione metabolism. And so if you're eating up your glutathione, then you know, any process that involves a lot of, of transfer of glutathione is going to raise GGT. So it indicates that your liver's working. So I, I have to say this because a lot of the papers don't really talk about GGT, um, but I, I think you know, we should be considering it as a marker. So I'm, yes. I'm bringing this up now because I'm saying, okay, here's a typical patient who's got an elevated GGT and or elevated AS, ALT but not necessarily AST. And then, so you can say, okay, they've got fatty liver. What's it from? And the first thing you ask them, well, how much do you drink? And if they say, well, I drink a glass of wine a day. Okay, well, you know that if you drink it every single day, 
maybe your liver's just not recovering, you know, and that, that could be a problem for you, especially if the GGT is up. So alcohol is a toxin, right? <laughs> you know, you have to go, okay, you've got to make sure that alcohol isn't a problem. But okay, let's say you've got a patient that says, I never drink. And, and yet their, their ALT is up and or GGT is up. And what if they're not overweight? And then the next thing is you go, well, okay, let's look at your methylone. You know, let's look at your, let's consider your choline intake, your folate intake. Let's look at some of these SNPs that we talked about to see if you're at risk. Let's measure your homocysteine. Well, let's say you go through all of that and all oh, that's fine. Their homocysteine is six, right? And they already take, um, you know, a methyl B. Um, and they get choline in their diet. So, okay, now I've rule out, rule out, rule out. Well, what are you left with? Well, then you start asking, are you on any kind of pharmaceuticals? Because certain pharmaceuticals we know can cause uh, fatty liver and NASH. Methotrexate is probably the best known. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it's depleting the methylone. Right. Right? Uh, other drugs that can do it, tamoxifen, uh, the anti-AIDS drugs corticosteroids. So think of those as being toxins. And if you've gone through all that list and you say, I still haven't found anything, well, then you start wondering about solvents, um, you know, what's the person's profession? I, I wouldn't say I'm worried about the profession is the very last thing. I certainly give people a toxic exposure questionnaire whenever they come in for an initial visit, you know, but that's a point where I might really go back with a fine tooth comb and say, hey, you know, are you doing anything that's involving solvents? Or could you be getting exposed to heavy metals or, you know, any other chemicals that are hepatotoxic? So all that, you know, amounts to what's called toxic and associated steatohepatitis, which Matthew Cave at University of Kentucky has been writing articles on, but now is pretty much accepted. And, you know, all I can say is it's out there. Um, and we probably need to study it more. Don't you think, though, okay, so maybe Frank Tash, you know, as caused by, you know, clear exposure, but don't you think the accumulation, I mean, all of these, obviously, if you're looking from a functional medicine lens, you could have a sprinkling of this, a, you know, a, a, a hint of that. I mean, pesticides on your foods, you know, a, a mild deficiency of your various methyl donors and your and choline insufficiency. I mean, you could have, you could have a number of these, you know, yeah. modestly poor diet, obviously, you know, so all of the, all pieces of all of this would, would fit into the end result as, as fatty liver. And I would imagine that's actually probably more the norm with what we're going to see in our practice. Yeah, and then there's this, yeah, I, I totally agree that you have to look at all these factors together, but then, then we've got, there's another wrench to throw in the works, which is dysbiosis. Yes, yeah, let's talk a little bit about right. that. You would go, yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait a minute, what does that have to do with the liver? Well, I mean, you think about the core pathophysiology of leaky gut, which is that you get leakage of endotoxin. Right, and, and that if that endotoxin is going into the lymphatics and that's draining into the liver, that's causing inflammation. So maybe that doesn't initiate the process of fatty liver, although it, it could, you know, it could throw things off just enough that, that, that you're going to get an increase in de novo lipogenesis. But it certainly can play a role in the progression of fatty liver towards steatohepatitis. And so that's, you know, otherwise known as metabolic endotoxemia. And, you know, that's the concern when a person complains of chronic bloating, not just that they're uncomfortable from the bloating, but what does that indicate about uh, life in their small intestinal microbiome? What's going on there? You know, and so there's a, there's a actually fairly surprisingly large body of data that links dysbiosis with both fatty liver and NASH. Yeah. And so, you know, what that, what that says is that you've, you've got to address what's going on in the gut, you know, as part of your overall approach. Now, when I said 
okay, I'm going down my algorithm. You know, I ask about alcohol. I ask about drugs. I ask about diet. I ask about profession. It's not either or, right? It's in, in functional medicine, we have our, our nice little matrix where we're just saying, okay, all of these things are influences. Right. And then the final thing on that list would be what's going on with your gut. Uh-huh. Now, unfortunately, if, if somebody doesn't have bloating and, and maybe they don't have lower GI symptoms, that doesn't necessarily mean they don't have dysbiosis. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, arguably, we're arguably, all most of us, most of us have dysbiosis. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So what it says to me is that, you know, you you probably should uh, consider doing something for the person's gut to help this condition, you know, and that something at minimum would include a a probiotic and probably some kind of prebiotic, um, you know, at very, at minimum. Yes, at minimum. Um. So you're casting a really pretty wide net and gut is a piece of it and choline yeah. consumption, of course. Choline consumption and or, and or phosphatidylcholine. So uh, uh, and I want to emphasize this because I've had people ask me lately, well, are, isn't phosphatidylcholine bad because Stanley Hazen said it increases TMAO and isn't that toxic? And, you know, I really think it's the other way around. I think the TMAO, you know, indicates choline depletion. Right, right, right. And because the bugs are consuming it. The bugs are consuming it, so it's not bugs. available for the methylone. Yeah, right. Um, this is a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. So, it's a lot. It's like, oh, my God. But you you know, know it's what, a whole that, new thing I got to think about in my practice. Oh, my God. Except that, except that I would argue everything that you've brought up thus far, diet, high fructose yeah. corn syrup, anybody practicing functional medicine in the world beyond, we're, we're you know, becoming more and more savvy. Even Archer Daniels Midland, arguably, is probably thinking about it to some extent. Everybody's um, thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and if you, I mean, if you practice functional medicine, if you lean on the matrix, if you take a good history, if you transition somebody onto a whole foods diet, you get them to eat as much organic, at least, you know, the clean, looking at the dirty dozen and that kind of thing. You're yeah. going a long, long, long way to turning it around, even without you know, the level of understanding that you're outlining here. Yeah, and, and you know, here's an interesting case of where all these things dovetailed is I, I just saw a patient yesterday who I diagnosed about a year ago with fatty liver. ALT was up, um, ultrasound showed fat, you know, all the usual stuff. She wasn't really, um, she, you know, she wasn't a big woman, but she had a, she had a lot of visceral fat. It was just her body type. But she also had SIBO. Yeah. And I put her on a low FODMAP diet and she lost all this weight. And her, you know, I, I was trying to get her to do a bunch of supplements and she couldn't, she, interestingly enough, she couldn't really tolerate them. Uh-huh. But the low FODMAP diet made her lose weight and her liver's fine now. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Yeah. It's not the first thing that we would think to turn around fatty liver. That's it's not what, you know, go low FODMAP because. Yeah. You know, the concern there is like now with low FODMAPs, you're taking out prebiotics. Isn't that going to lead to dysbiosis? But she had so much weight loss, you know, she lost like 15 pounds. Right, right. Well, so and you... Such a restrictive diet. Well, I mean, arguably, you might, you turned around the ratio of her microbiome, even as yep. you're fasting it and, you know, less choline consumption, more available for liver. Yep, you know, less yep. calling consumption by the micro, by the dysbiotic yep. organisms. And yep, yeah, anyway, yep. I mean, I think it was, it's just really multifactorial what you did. So it brings up the point of like, well, you know, what's the, what's the mainstream approach to this? And, you know, everybody agrees that if you lose weight, that fat will come out of your liver, right? So, you know, if you can get people early enough, and that's really the key, is the sooner you can diagnose this, you know, the, the sooner you can do something. Just assume that if you've got a patient with type 2 diabetes, assume they got fatty liver, right? If yeah. their BMI is over 30, they got fatty liver. Just assume it regardless of what the biomarkers show. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then there's going to be other people where you, 
you know, you're not quite sure. Uh, again, those people may not be overweight, may not be diabetic, but they've got this elevated liver enzyme. You know, if you confirm it in them, then even those people could stand to lose body fat. Yes. And, and you, but you need to lose, you know, at least 5% of your body weight. So we're not just talking about a pound or two. And if, if you're moving towards NASH, um, you know, which you would probably not be diagnosing based on a biopsy, but because their CRP is up or their, their, their transaminases are way high, those people need to lose at least 10% of their weight, which is really hard to do, right, without some kind of more aggressive intervention. You know, here, here's a little rub is that when people get bariatric surgery, um, and go through that rapid weight loss, then fatty livers are, is a fairly common consequence of that. Because <laughs> you suddenly release all these free fatty acids. You know, you, you stop eating all the bad foods, but then all that adipose tissue is going to release free fatty acids. It gets recycled and ends up in the liver. And the bariatric surgeons know all about this. So that's a, you know, that's a subset of people where you go, okay, what interventions would you do for them? Because you're already having them eat less. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously you got to tell people to stop the high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. Try to get people to exercise at least 150 minutes a week. You know, all those things are critical. Work on their, you know, assume that they've got some dysbiosis. So work on their gut. Um, should you give them drugs? <laughs> you know, if they don't have high blood sugar, how are you going to, or high lipids? How are you going to justify giving them a prescription drug? Right. And well, let, go ahead. Uh, well, uh, you know what? I, I, I let's just. I want to go. I want to. We don't have a ton of time left, and I want to talk. There, the fact of the matter is, as you pointed out at the beginning of our talk, we can turn Nash around using functional medicine and using supplements and yeah. very old school um, liver protocols included choline i mean we've known about this in our space lipotropics they call yeah, them lipotropics exactly. it's old naturopathic remedy super old school stuff we've been doing this forever right. so so across the board regardless of the underlying cause or causes of fatty liver we're going to be looking at a handful of all important supplements and i and i and i want you to walk through those what are your all top right. what are your top considerations Anybody we'll walking through your door, what do okay. you think? A prebiotic, I think, is really helpful. Okay. And the question is, so if Which a person's one? got SIBO, you know, if they bloat, you know, with prebiotics, the prebiotic foods, like, so I, I tell people to eat, you know, garlic and onions, bananas, asparagus, things like that, that are good prebiotics. Some people will bloat with those foods. Um, if they do, um, there's one called partially hydrolyzed guar gum. Yeah, that I think is awesome. Um, now, when years ago, you know, I, I remember all this research done by Dr. Anderson on uh, on guar gum for diabetes, and you know, he had some pretty good data showing that guar gum would lower blood sugar, et cetera. It was a great fiber, but that guar gum is nasty, right? And people blow like crazy on it. It tastes terrible. Uh, they made these guar gum crackers. <laughs> I don't remember oh, those. I mean, just you remember those? Just no, disgusting. I don't. Oh my god, <laughs> just disgusting. So, um, you know, we a number of years ago, and I was um, helping Thorne des design some uh, fiber products, um, and part of that came out of um, problems finding a clean source of psyllium. Right. It turns out most of the psyllium that's sold in the market is terribly contaminated. Right. It's just, it's, you'd be amazed at the kind of contaminants you find in there. And so Thorne was selling a, uh, a psyllium product and said, you know, we just can't sell it anymore. We can't justify it. It's not clean and we need another fiber. Um, and then we stumbled on this stuff called sun fiber which is partially hydrolyzed guar. And I was very skeptical because of my previous experience with guar. But then I started looking at the data and it's quite impressive. It's like one of the only prebiotics that's not a FODMAP. 
And there's pretty, there's really good animal data on it showing that you increase butyrate levels with it, that, that it increases beneficial bacteria, especially lactobacilli, and it also decreases liver fat. So I love that stuff. <laughs> I love that stuff. Um, and recommend it a lot. How much do you need? Somewhere around five to eight grams a day okay. of the sun fiber. Good. So that's kind of the first thing that I do is try to get the gut in line. And then I have some go-to supplements that I, that I think are really helpful. And, you know, probably the one that I like the most is curcumin phytosome, which is, you know, we sell thorn cells as Mariva. Uh -huh. um, and the reason is, this is interesting. When I first started doing this research on fatty liver, I kind of went at it from a treatment agnostic perspective. I just started doing searches and, and uh, you know, National Library of Medicine, just looking for supplements of fatty liver. So you read a paper on fatty liver and it says, well, there's no treatment besides weight loss and, and uh, you know, drugs to lower lipids. But if you type in, you know, dietary supplements and fatty liver, suddenly you get all these hits. And I'm thinking, why are these things listed in the mainstream papers on this? Because the data is pretty impressive. And in particular, I started finding all these hits on curcumin phytosome. Hmm. And specifically for fatty liver, uh, kind of blew my mind. And I went, wait a minute, curcumin phytosome, isn't that Mariva? And I looked it up, and sure enough, that's what they were using. I had wow. no idea. Interesting. So I started at it. I wasn't saying, okay, I like Mariva. Where are the papers that support it? Right. It was the other way around. Like, you know, oh, looks like curcumin has been helpful for fatty liver. You know, is there any research on this? And I type it in, and curcumin phytosome comes up. How much were they using? Not a lot. Two caps a day of the 500s. Wow. And that was it? That was, the only, that was the only intervention? That was the only intervention. I'm like, what? Wow. You know, so that's why the, the Mariva is pretty much my go-to product uh -huh. for fatty liver. You know, everybody should be on it with fatty liver because it's so well tolerated and because this data is pretty compelling. I mean, there was one study. So typically they give a 500 BID for about eight weeks. And they're finding huge reductions in liver fat but lipids are getting better. People are losing weight. Their liver enzymes, their trans transferase levels are coming down. Wow. That's pretty One fascinating. study found like on 500 BID of, of Mariva for two months in people that had ultrasonically proven fatty liver, there was a 75% drop in liver fat based on ultrasound. No dietary changes. No exercise. So the, both groups, so they, they my understanding from reading the paper was it both groups got put on a diet where they said, okay, cut back on the junk food and the sugar, et cetera. So both groups got the same intervention, mm -hmm. but you got a much bigger improvement in the intervention group. So the control group had a little bit of improvement. In other words, it's not enough to just say cut back on the sugar. It's right. just not enough, right? Once you've got pathology going on. So, so, again, Mariva does two things. It gives you curcumin, you know, that's highly absorbable. And you also get the phytosome, which is made of sunflower phospholipids sun, and mostly uh, sunflower phosphatidylcholine. And so you're, you're getting a therapeutic amount? Yeah, if you're doing a gram a day, you know, that, that, a huge chunk of that is phosphatidylcholine. Huh, okay, that's pretty cool. All right. So, so give it's me a two for one. It's a two for one. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about, you know, GGT is often and up and we know there's a serious redox imbalance in, in fatty liver. So what about like your knack and lipoic acid, et cetera? I mean, what always, you know, that's kind of a go-to um, something I learned from, uh, from Leo Galland, who I, I interviewed um, last year was that, that you really need, that, you know, NAC is a great supplement, a great precursor to glutathione, mm -hmm. but you really need to give it at least twice a day, if not three times a day, because the half-life is pretty short. Hmm. Interesting. Right, Interesting. so if somebody's got fatty liver, that's just a little, you know, take-home message here, is that it's, it's 
probably better to give lower amounts, five or 600 milligrams a day, uh, five or 600 milligrams a dose, BID or TID, than it is to give, you know, a huge dose all at once. That's pretty interesting. You know, just, I've always done that and for years, like, okay, do, yeah. you know, 900, 1800 milligrams once a day and you're fine. Yeah. But Leo kind of makes a case for spreading it out. Yeah, right. You okay. also raise glutathione from, from uh, milk thistle. And the, so there's another product that made by Indina, sold by Thorne, called Silifos. And there's actually several published studies on Silifos, which is salibin phytosome for fatty liver. You know, I think they combined it with vitamin E and also with alpha lipoic acid. So that's, that's, that's a really uh, effective combination of salibin phytosome vitamin E and, and either alpha lipoic acid or NAC. So a lot of the people that I'm treating, you know, they don't just have fatty liver, they've got other conditions. And so, you know, if they only had fatty liver, I might just say, give them Mariva or give them Silifos. But, you know, they've got a lot of other things going on with their cardiovascular system. So I'm, I'm definitely wanting to increase their glutathione Mm-hmm. You know, which, like you said, if your GGT is up, that kind of indicates to me that they would benefit from more glutathione because maybe they're exposed to, to toxins. Well, how are you going to raise that? I mean, are you going to expect that to happen with the um, salibin and the lipoic acid or the NAC? I mean, are you using glutathione? Um, I usually start with, with NAC and or alpha lipoic acid, uh, Silifos and vitamin E, right? If we're talking about more liver specific, you know, metabolic specific conditions. Now, if somebody's got, uh, you know, other issues like autoimmune disease or brain disorders where I think they really need glutathione, if they got Parkinson's disease, yep. then, you know, I'm really pushing the glutathione there. And I would go with a, you know, either like a time release glutathione. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of different options on the market, mm-hmm. but I like the precursors because the precursors to me, um, you know, they're in, inex- they're, they're not expensive yes. and there's pretty good data on them. I mean, milk thistle yes. raises glutathione. Yes. Yes. There's really, I think there's really good data. In fact, I don't know that the jury has concluded as to, you know, whether or not precursors are or actual glutathione, which as you know, is extremely expensive, is clearly superior to precursors. I mean, it's have not, you- I, I, I don't, I, I don't know why NAC isn't kind of a standard of care. Let's put it that way for, for a whole lot of different conditions. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I've taken it myself for 20 years. You know, it's because it got so many other benefits, you know, the antiviral effects of that glutathione, you know, the brain supportive effects, not, not just the, the redox impact. So, yeah. you know, I take both. <laughs> oh, you do? You take NAC and? I take the NAC and alpha lipoic acid. I, just, oh, I mean, we're all exposed to toxins. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, um, why, it's kind of a why not. All right. Um, in our, we, Let's, can we talk about berberine a little bit? Cause yeah, I, we can, we can, but we have, we, we've got like a minute. So just give me, give me the other main interventions in our. All right. So berberine is kind of, is definitely a go-to for me. So I've already talked about Mariva, you know, curcumin phytosome. Uh, I talked about the sunflower, sun fiber, vitamin E, you need about 800 to a thousand units. Um, omega-3 fatty acids, several grams a day. Uh, panathene, something that not many people know about. You know, about a gram a day of panathene has got very good data on it for reversing fatty liver. Um, melatonin, vitamin E. Yeah. You know, lots of different options. And then I would say last but definitely not least is the berberine, which, you know, people think of berberine as an antimicrobial, but it's one of the best things out there for for metabolic syndrome, and I, I yes. think of berberine is like almost an anti-aging pill. Yes. And where I, I really see the benefits is at about a gram a day. Okay. So yeah. 500 a day, not so much, but when you hit 1,000 to 1,500, 
that's really when you start seeing metabolic changes. And, and some people, I see weight loss. Oh, interesting. Not everybody, but when you get to 1500, you know, it's not that unusual for people to say, gee, I started losing weight without making any other changes. But there, there are several studies on it, animal studies and human studies for fatty liver. Yes. Yeah. What about, all right, one more thing. Um, what about niacin? Um, I think it's a I great love product. It. So yeah. niacin, yeah, nicotinamide riboside. A whole, there's a whole other story that's kind of emerging is that NAD uh, levels tend to drop with aging. And why is that? Because you, you get damaged to your DNA, you activate the repair enzymes, the PARP enzymes, and PARP consume NAD, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there are papers now showing that NAD deficiency leads to fatty liver. They're, they're animal studies, but they're pretty compelling. Yeah. Um, so, you know, nicotinamide riboside has been clearly shown to increase NAD in these animal studies, and there are now human studies showing that nicotinamide riboside increases NAD uh, in the body. So uh, I definitely think it's part of the, the mix there. I always combine it now with resveratrol. So I either use niacel and polyresveratrol, or I use a resveracel, which is the combination product. For a lot of people, that combination product, you know, which is, uh, you know, resveratrol, nicotinamide riboside, quercetin, and a little bit of TNG, to me, it's kind of an ideal product right. uh, for fatty liver. Right, right. Yeah, it's like a next-generation lipotropic. Next-gen, next next-gen lipotropic, yeah, and anti-aging. Well, listen, I want to you, – you, you unpacked a lot, and um, any papers that you would want our listeners to be aware of or any content you can, you can share – just to kind of underscore some of these points. Like if, you know, if we, well, and, and, I wonder if, like, if I could send you, like I could send you, you know, a PDF of a presentation. Oh, that Is would that, be perfect. Be, perfect. Or, yeah. Or maybe, yeah. If you do that, turn it into a PDF. Yeah. And absolutely. then the PDF got nice graphics. Perfect. And, uh, and got references on in each page. Yeah, that would be that would be fabulous. So yeah, we'll, we, we will feature it on the show notes of the page and, um, Everybody will greatly appreciate it because you did unpack quite a bit of useful information. <laughs> Listen, Dr. Roundtree, it was so great to spend this time with you today. I'm giving you a big hug through cyberspace, and I know I'll be seeing you soon in Atlanta. Yes, absolutely. All right. Thanks for joining me today. All right. You bet. Thank you. Take care. Ciao. Bye.